0: There's an obvious problem with the claim that Jesus brings true peace and it's that we don't seem to have it. The song Silent Night 7 O'Clock News was released on Simon and Garfunkel's third album. It's a grim comment on the state of the USA in 1966. The newscaster reads a litany of events that were happening in the country at that time. The death of Lenny Bruce from a drug overdose. The National Guard being called in to fight civil rights protesters. The indictment of Richard Speck for the murder of eight student nurses and a Richard Nixon speech calling for an increase in the war effort in Vietnam. Meanwhile, the beautiful carol, Silent Night, is slowly drowned out by the tide of violence and conflict. We don't seem to be at peace. Did the angels get their facts wrong? In verse 14 that Rachel just read of Luke 2, it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men and women on whom his favour rests. But we're not at peace. We're not at peace on the macro level. According to the website warsintheworld.com, these are some of the places where peace has been torn apart by violence in 2013. Burma, Myanmar, Syria, Pakistan the Philippines, Mali, Turkey, India, Sudan, Colombia, Algeria, Afghanistan, Chechnya, Yemen, Somaliland and Israel. Actually, that wasn't the whole of 2013. That was January. And we're at war on the micro level down here. Family feuds, marriage breakdown and road rage outside primary schools in South Manchester and elsewhere. We all want peace, but we don't have peace. And sometimes Christmas seems to make it worse. Is there any other time of year that is less conducive to peace? I speak particularly to parents of young children. The cover of Heat magazine this week announced Jordan and Pete at war over Christmas. She wants big celebrations with all her kids. He wants the children with him and Emily. Who will win? Ah, you say, that's Jordan and Pete. They're always fighting. But let me ask you, how peaceful is your life? How peaceful is your heart? Is there someone you are not speaking to at the moment? Is there someone you can't look in the eye? Is there someone who just makes you mad just thinking about them? Is there someone you can't forgive? This week, Namdi and I met on Tuesday evening to plan this meeting... And to talk about what we were going to do. And I said to Namdi, the subject is, Jesus brings true peace. And we looked at each other and I said, Namdi, I've got to tell you, I've had a furious row with my wife today. And I'm not at peace with Melissa at the moment. And he kind of gave us a sheepish smile and said, me too. And we gave each other that look that only two men in the doghouse can give. You see, we're not at peace. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to give true peace on earth. That's what the angels announced. So what kind of peace was it? Now that text that uh, Rachel read out earlier is a well-known Christmas passage. It's very subtle. You have to peek behind the manger and the shepherds to see the nature of the peace that Jesus brings and how it will come. The story of the birth of Jesus, I think, is showing two things. And I've got two points today. Firstly, there are two kinds of king, and secondly, there are two ways to peace. Two kinds of king. Verse 1 of that uh, Bible passage says that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Who is this Caesar Augustus? He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who you've probably heard of. He became sole ruler of the Roman world after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all his rivals. The last one to to fall was Mark Antony, who committed suicide. Augustus turned the republic into an empire with himself as the top dog. He announced that he had come to bring peace to the whole world. He styled himself the son of God, which makes for quite a business card. Poets wrote songs about the dawn of a new age, and Augustus, some said, was the saviour of the world. He was its king and its lord. Some even started worshipping him as a god. Augustus was the ruler of the greatest empire on earth, and he was at the height of his powers when Jesus was born, out somewhere on the eastern frontier. Just think about the power this man had Caesar could click his fingers in a marble paved corridor somewhere in the corridors of power in Rome and 1,400 miles away, a young peasant couple called Mary and Joseph have to figure out how to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a shoestring because Joseph was from the line of David and his family hometown was 70 miles away down south. Can you imagine taking a heavily pregnant teenager on a 70 mile round trip on the back of a donkey. I need the loo. What, again? Yes, but it's 14 miles to the nearest service station. I can't go by the side of the road. But when Caesar says jump, you jump. And Luke tells this story deliberately in this way because he wants to set the birth of Jesus against the backdrop of immense power, the ruler of Rome, the ruler of this world. What did Augustus achieve? An inscription that's been found by archaeologists that was made during his reign said, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings that have come through him. The same inscription said Augustus was a savior to the world. So when we think about Caesar, it puts the nativity scene in a different light. What a contrast. The ruler of Rome and a poor couple in Bethlehem. Peasants, with no cash, no credit cards, no connections, and no influence. They don't even have a room booked at the bed and breakfast. They swaddle a newborn baby in strips of cloth, which was customary, but they don't have a cot, so they improvise with a feeding trough that is in the room. Now, there's no evidence, sorry to say, that there were any animals present, or that they were out in a stable. More likely, they were in the the ground floor of a house that sometimes animals were kept in. So there was a feeding trough there. It's humble, and it's not necessarily hygienic. But here's what the angels say is going on. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ, that means king, and Lord. You notice those three words? Saviour, king, Lord. This is the same language that's being used of this guy. See what's going on? The Bible is asking the question who is the real king? Who is the real saviour? Who is the real Lord? Caesar and Jesus. They are poles apart. And because of that, they represent two ways to peace. Two ways to peace. The Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, was a period of peace experienced by the empire in the first and second centuries. It was established by Augustus. He boasted that he brought peace to the whole world. And to a degree he had, the peace lasted for 206 years. And it ended with the reign of Septimius Severus, who later went on to teach at Hogwarts School. (laughs) 206 years of peace. How was it achieved? By decades of bloody civil war and military expansion. By the development of the Roman armies as the ultimate killing machine. They could take on anyone except the Scottish. They couldn't, they got up to Scotland and they decided to stop fighting and just build a wall instead and try and keep them out. But until that day, they were all powerful. And that is how the Pax Romana was established by violent confrontation, military might, by subjugating people and then taxing the living daylights out of them. Because that's what empires do. And that's why they had a census figure out how much more tax we can get. So that is one way to peace. It's top down. It's raw power. It is the root of every empire before and since. Now if there are two ways to peace, and that's one of them, what's the other? The other way is Jesus way. It's alternative and it looks very weak. Jesus never held high office. He never made it to Rome. He never earned much money. In fact, he was actually homeless for a while. He never fought. In fact, he resisted violence. And he was executed by the state at the age of 33. So what kind of peace did Jesus Christ bring? Another part of the Bible gives this answer. It's from a letter written by a man called Paul, about 30 years after Jesus was crucified. And I'll just read it out to you. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Now, this Bible passage basically says that Jesus' way to peace was through the cross, specifically by dying on a cross, by his blood being shed and his life ebbing out of him. Now, how does that work? It's like this. When somebody hurts you or does you wrong or causes damage to you in some way or other, there's always a debt incurred. There's always a price to pay. Someone has to pay it. If somebody uh, bangs into your car and causes a load of damage to the bodywork and breaks a headlight and damages the radiator, someone has to pay it. You take the car down to the garage. They give you a quote. The repairs are going to cost £500. Who's going to pay? Now, you can decide to forgive the person but all that means is you pay the debt yourself. Now, that's a car. What about deeper damage? What about damage in relationships? It's far more costly and harder to fix. What does forgiveness look like there? How can it be reconciled? Only by paying the debt yourself. By refusing to take payment from the other person. And that is really painful because... There are times when everything inside you is screaming out for revenge, to pay them back, to hurt them back, either by words, by shouting at them, screaming at them, swearing at them, tearing down their reputation, or by actions, by making them feel the pain of what they've done to you. So forgiveness in relationships is really costly. You know this. It's why some of you have said in your heart, I could never forgive that person. I can't forgive them. They have hurt me too much. What you're really saying is this. I won't release that person from the debt that they owe me. I won't take the pain they should bear it. But if they won't, then it eats you up inside. So you are at war. And every time you think about that person or see them or bump into them or hear about them, the war breaks out afresh in your own heart. That's how wars start and get fueled and continue. Whether it's little wars between lovers, siblings, and families, or big wars between tribes and nations. It's the same dynamic. Damage is done, payment is demanded. So, back to the cross. How does Jesus bring peace? How does it work? It works on two levels there's the macro level, and then there's the micro level down here. The macro level. We don't have peace with God. The Bible says we're at war with our maker. We live life without thinking about God. We live life without thanking him. We don't try and obey him and do what he says. The Bible says that most people are actually enemies of God but in their minds, they are trying to run their lives without him. They're trying to rule the world, which puts them on a collision course with their maker. And because we're at war with God, we're at war with each other down here. Because we're trying to make life revolve around ourselves, we're on a collision course with anyone who gets in our way. And at the cross, Jesus pays our debt. He takes the pain on himself. So any one of us can be freely forgiven. Two Chinese brothers lived in California in the early part of the 20th century. They were almost identical Uh, to look at, although they weren't twins. But their character was completely different. One of them was a hard-working, responsible type of guy. He was the older brother. The younger one was a notorious rogue, drinker, and gambler. One night, the younger brother was involved in a card game, and after it, it broke out into a brawl, and he accidentally killed a man. He fled the scene, ran home, got out of his clothes that had blood on them, and he got out of town. Later on, the elder brother returned to the same house and realized what had happened. And he knew that the police were gonna come looking for his brother, who looked just like him. So he put on the clothes. When the police came, they mistook him for his brother. He was tried, he was found guilty of manslaughter, and he was executed by the state. He took his brother's death penalty. Sometime later, the younger brother crept back to town, some years later, and he discovered what had happened. He was shaken to the core. He went to the police station, and he confessed that he was the one who would actually done the crime. But you know what the police said? You can't execute two people for one crime. You are free to go. The penalty has been paid. I wonder how his life changed. Christians believe that that's what Jesus Christ did at the cross. He took my penalty. He put on my bloody clothes and took the hit for me. And that changes everything. If you know that you've been forgiven, that somebody else has paid your debt, then it starts to change you. You're humble because you realise that you're no better than anyone else. You start to see things from other people's point of view. And you become much more ready to forgive and to say sorry because you have been forgiven so much yourself. You see, we can't really understand the manger unless we understand the cross. Jesus brings true peace, peace with God, and through that, peace with one another. So let me ask you one question in closing. Are you ready for this news, this good news of great joy? The first people to see the glory of Jesus Christ were not great intellectuals and philosophers and thinkers. They were not power brokers in the marble corridors of the Roman Senate. They were not religious leaders and people famous for their moral character. They were shepherds. And everybody knew that shepherds were rough, unwashed, uneducated men. They were unshaven, weather-beaten, and they probably smelled bad. And in the wider culture of that time, shepherds were considered unclean, too dirty for God. But when the good news came, and the angels announced it, who were the people who were ready to hear it? Shepherds. And they listened. And they realized that God had come for them. And they rushed to see Jesus. Will you?